This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. We are joined by Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. The latest up on the New York Post.com here is Buckle Up, Trump's era of disruption has only just begun. Michael, great to have you. Uh, good afternoon, Buck. Thank you. Uh, first, you're telling people to buckle up. Let, let's just start with some of the folks that are going to have to get this out of their system, or I don't know if they're ever going to, but they should try. Wisconsin yesterday, after the electors voted for Trump, this was the scene. Clip six. The votes are 10 votes, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> They're yelling shame, like from Game of Thrones. you got to love it. Uh, Michael, still in denial, still throwing tantrums. Uh, is it ever going to stop? Well, look, uh, I think largely um, it is up to Donald Trump. Um, if he performs as he promised, uh, if he delivers jobs, 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 if he delivers peace through strength abroad, uh, I think he will create momentum and I think he will build a pragmatic governing coalition. Now, obviously, the left, the far left, those Looney Tunes screaming shame and, and holding all kinds of rallies and issuing death threats and intimidating the electors, uh, they will never be satisfied. They, they don't care about the country. They only care about themselves. And they really are the most selfish people on the planet when you think of it. Uh, they have no respect for anybody's views and have no respect for the law, for, for the Constitution. So he's not going to win them over. Uh, the question is, how many of them are there? How much attention do they get? Because if he succeeds, then I think they will shrink. Uh, but if he fails, then their ranks will grow and more and more people will be discontented. So I think he's... Uh, really started out very well. I think he's got a very strong cabinet, people of real great accomplishment uh, who are likely to break down a lot of the barriers within government that stand in the way of individual liberty and job creation uh, and common sense. So if he continues along this road and keeps his focus and doesn't chase rabbits down rabbit holes, I think he's got a chance to really minimize the, the Looney Tune left. Yeah, I mean, the Looney Tune left isn't going to change even if he does fantastic things for most of the country, right? There's going to be that fringe of 10 to 20 percent 
that thinks that Donald Trump is is Hitler in waiting, no matter what he does, uh, even if he's yeah. just tweaking the tax code and creating more job growth and, and helping small businesses. It's going to be, you know, whiffs of fascism for the next four years. At least that's what we're going to hear from people. Uh, but it, it does seem like Trump so far, even to some conservatives who have had a lot of misgivings, including some of my friends and colleagues who have been never Trump, they're seeing what he's doing. They're saying oh, this so far seems pretty sober, seems pretty mature. Look, I, I think, you know, someone said to me the other day, a, a very conservative person who has been quite supportive of Trump, um, didn't start out that way, but likes a lot, said to me, his cabinet is more conservative, and I said, than Romney's would have been. He said, forget Romney, his is more conservative than George W. Bush's. And when you look at it, I mean, it's really true. So the never-Trumpers on the right I think, don't have much of a leg to stand on. Now, look, I understand people don't like Trump. They don't like some of his personal habits, lifestyle, etc. But the election is over. All of those questions have been put to rest for now. And, and now we begin to judge him and, and uh, rank him, I think, as a president, as a president-elect and, and soon as a president. And I think we have to take him uh, by the same standard that we would judge others and by the conservative standard He's got a pretty conservative cabinet, I would say. Uh, also, Michael Goodwin has a piece up on com. Time to face reality, Obama. Trump is going to be president. Uh, the, the left is still, obviously, as we just talked about, adjusting right. to all of this. The Obama legacy, I don't think this is just a, a right-wing talking point. I don't think this is just something that's getting the, the sort of conservative base excited or people are trying to get it excited with this. Obama's what o- Obamacare is certainly up for dismantling. A- any number of executive orders can be repealed right away. Uh, what what do you think is going to happen to the Obama legacy with the Trump presidency? Well, I would say that first, uh, Buck, the the biggest Obama legacy is Trump himself. Um, I I you know I have written that the, the pendulum often swings very far, and let's face it, uh, George Bush begat Obama. And Obama, with his overreach and his insufferable arrogance and elitist dictates coming out of Washington, uh, begat Donald Trump. I mean, when you, when you think back to all of the Republican candidates who started this race, why did Donald Trump persevere? Why was he the one who was able to emerge? And Newt Gingrich gave, a, gave an excellent speech last week in Washington in which he said, you know, the others, many qualified senators, Republicans, they would come in and say, I'm from Washington, I can fix this. And Trump came in and said, didn't say anything, just kicked over the table. And that's what people wanted. They, they wanted relief. They wanted clear, certain relief. They wanted a street fighter. And they got one in Donald Trump. And so I think that if Trump looks radical by historic standards, I think you also have to trace that back to Obama. I mean, Obama was a very radical government by historic standards. Yeah, I mean, the president came into office saying that he was going to fundamentally transform the country, and that was met with rapturous applause. People seem to think that was a fantastic idea in the crowds that had gathered. And that was all okay. And, you know, now we keep hearing that Donald Trump is going to be uh, the destruction of the world. Uh, there is, it seems to me, an entire industry popping up of Trump catastrophists, uh, and they're trying to outdo one another in the media with how horrific all of, all of this is going to be. Certainly based on the cabinet that he has, you have a lot of people with uh, tremendous backgrounds in government and experience and demonstrated records of success. 
Uh, do, you, do you think that there's going to be any chance for Trump to actually bring some Democrats on board? Uh, or are we going to sort of see a, just a solidified uh, opposition from the other side of the aisle that doesn't break no matter what Trump does? Well, look, I, I think in terms of rank and file voters, he clearly got a fair number of Democrats or, or independents. Yeah, I mean, I mean rep- representatives yeah. and politicians. But well, go ahead. look, I, I, I mean, I think that, what, there are 10 Democratic senators up for re-election in 2018 in states that Trump won. So I think they are the most likely. Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, I think, were, were two of the ones considered for the cabinet. Uh, perhaps they can be brought on board for a couple of votes. Certainly, I think Manchin from West Virginia, a coal state, would be very uh, happy to see regulations lifted. Um, he's a clear Second Amendment guy himself. So I, I think that there are possibilities, but I think there's going to be great pressure on those people to, to not to break ranks with the Democratic Party, to stay in the Senate because those seats could easily be won by Republicans. And in fact, both of those states have Republican governors who would be appointing uh, senators in the meantime. So I think that that the the Democratic establishment is going to push back on anybody going into the Trump administration, even even voting with him. But look, at the same time, if those people vote against Trump all the time and he is successful, then their seats are really endangered in 2018. So there's a practical political reality that I think will uh, cause some disruptions and defections in the Democratic ranks. Also wanted to ask you, Michael, while we've got you here, and we're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. You can read his latest on NewYorkPost.com. Yesterday, a number of uh, huge national security stories. Uh, we've got the Christmas market attack in Berlin. Uh, you've got right. the assassination of the Russian ambassador in Ankara uh, by a Turkish gunman who's been caught on video, and everyone's seen exactly what happened there. Uh, what are some of the main takeaways that you have, given what's going on over there and around the world? Well, look, I, I think that uh, Turkey um, is such a linchpin of of the world order that most people don't fully appreciate a the the history of Turkey as a as a real crossroads of religion and cultures and Europe and Asia. I mean, I happened to have visited a few years ago, and I was frankly embarrassed by how little I knew about Turkey. Um, and it remains, I mean, it's a member of NATO, um, and yet it is really on the outside of so much of the West these days. I mean, Erdogan is a very strange character. Uh, the coup gave him the license, the attempted coup gave him the license to restrict all kinds of indiv- indiv- individual freedoms. More journalists are locked up in Turkey than in China. Uh, so it is, it is a country on the brink of flipping and I, I think that is a major concern when, and they've got so many now Syrian refugees there, and it, 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 is, it is a dangerous uh, powder keg, uh, Turkey, and I would hate to see uh, it fall out of the Western orbit any further, because I think it is an important bulwark against Islamic terrorism. Uh, in Germany, look, I think Merkel made a huge mistake in bringing in so many refugees, questions unasked, unvetted, uh, and I think she she confused sort of a humanitarian mission with her responsibility to secure her own country and protect her own people first. I mean, this is this is a classic example. Imagine if she had said Germany first, uh, as Donald Trump has said America first. That would have been a clarifying principle. 
uh, to vet the refugees. Instead, she let a million in. I mean, Germany's population is about 80 million. Letting a million refugees in, in effect, within months, there's no way they can be assimilated into the culture. Michael Goodwin is a New York Post columnist. Read his latest on NewYorkPost.com, and he's also a Fox News contributor. Michael, really appreciate you making the time today. Thank you for calling in. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Team, the uh, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Blaze Radio Network. Sponsored this half hour, SilencerShop.com. Team, Silencer Shop is simply the best place you can go with the best prices and the best service to get a silencer, to get a suppressor for your firearm. When you purchase a silencer from SilencerShop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. Uh, a Buying from SilencerShop.com is also just like buying local because your local dealer is setting the price and making the profit. Now you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local business. Silencer Shop offers the best selection of products from the top brands and tries to keep all the most popular models in stock. That helps you get what you want faster. So do check it out. Go to silencershop.com. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Uh, we've got Jim in Minnesota line. Jim from the Bucks Action Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. I'm all right. How are you? Fine, fine. Uh, yeah, we called in Friday, of course, and tried to share a story, but I didn't have time as far as about a restaurant experience, bad restaurant experience I had. And, uh, this actually takes me back to 1983. That's how good a memory I got. <laughs> All right. Let it, let, we, we've got the time. Tell us about what happened. Well, uh, what happened was I went in to uh, get a burger at this, uh, one restaurant right before I went in the Navy. And, uh, the, you know, I told them medium on the burger, or I figured it'd be cooked. And uh, they brought it back to me. It was like more like medium rare, very medium rare. And so I, I told them, I says, hey, you know, I can't eat this. Uh, you know, please take it back and cook it, you know. And uh, so they finally brought it back. And uh, this time they, you know, had cooked the burger, but the uh, bun underneath the burger was a grease sponge. So you say, I didn't want to eat it that way. And so finally the third try, they got it right. But uh. <laughs> okay, Jim, that's quite a story. Thanks for calling in, buddy. She'll tie. So they didn't cook his burger well. All right. I'm. I'm. I mean, I almost got like knocked out by a chandelier on a date that fell on a table next to us. That's a little more what I'm looking for here. Not like a place didn't meet your expectations with the burger the first time. But I appreciate Jim's effort. I do. Um, what am I going to switch? <laughs> What's a good transition from that? Oh, remember how we talked about. Uh, 
did, didn't we play Kurt Eichenwald on the show? And he was saying, and he went back and forth to Tucker Carlson. I think we did that on Friday. Because uh, this guy, Kurt Eichenwald, who's one of these journalists who has some very sort of uh, lofty perches, contributing editor of Vanity Fair. He writes for Newsweek. He's one of, you know, one of those print journalists of some, uh, of some exceptional resume. And he had said, without ever saying anything, um, uh, he had said without having any, you know, ever getting into it uh, beyond that, that uh, Trump was in a mental institution, in a mental hospital um, or something, or was committed to a mental institution. And I have to say, I thought to myself, okay, um, that's quite a charge. He's going to have to back that up. And same thing with uh, with Tucker on Fox when they were going back and forth. Here is what Eichenwald said in response to uh, to the question: How, Do you have any evidence or any proof that Donald Trump was institutionalized? Play clip two. Done a lot of tough reporting uh, on Donald Trump. Your Twitter feed is filled with um, with comments about Donald Trump as as well. Uh, one of them, you, you once said you believe Donald Trump was institutionalized. You're laughing about that now. Not back. Any regrets about that? It, there's a long story behind it. Um, when you go through the full fee lead up to that tweet, um, uh, there was a reporting purpose for that tweet going out, uh, which is more than you're going to want to hear about. I thought I was making fun of Fox News and the rest who were doing Hillary has seizures, Hillary has uh, multiple sclerosis, Hillary has Parkinson's, you know, let's go to Dr. Oz. And so I was writing a series of uh, jokes leading up to that with the intent of sending that tweet, which was a signal to a source to talk to me. I, I, I don't even know what he's saying. I don't even know what his, uh, what that means. A signal to a source to talk. Can you play like the last half of that again? Just because it's, it's kind of gibberish. I mean, he's speaking words, but it doesn't make any sense. Now, let's go to Dr. Oz. And so I was writing a series of uh, jokes leading up to that with the intent of sending that tweet, which was a signal to a source to talk to me. A signal to a source to talk to you. Wow. That's, so that's how you get away from having to have an actual... Uh, serious, real source for your information that you say that there's another source out there. You can't name him. Uh, you, know, you can't name him. But there's another individual out there who is uh, able to, oh gosh, verify this? I, I don't know. It's just crazy. This is another example of one of these journalists who has gotten so insane, so anti-Trump, that nothing really makes sense anymore, that they'll just sort of say anything. They'll say whatever they can. And uh, I have to say that to me is something we're going to continue to see, right? I mean, they get a, it's a really it's a Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, they're going to sacrifice their careers or their credibility, probably not their careers, because you can that's that's too much, because as you can be as hateful and dishonest and nasty about Trump as you want. And that does not uh, in any way, shape or form exclude you from polite company. I mean, you can make up lies about Trump and people will, I mean, look, you know, people will sort of high five you. Uh, 
But I, I do think there's a level of crazy, though, in the lies that if you cross that line and you get really off the rails, people are going to start to say, well, you, you got some you got some problems. Um, you got some some real issues here. So I don't know what's going to happen with this, Mr. Eichenwald, uh, but that was the most bizarre thing. You know, dude, just say that you were wrong and, and pull the tweet, but maybe he's worried he's actually going to get sued. Uh, Trump is litigious, we know. That is a possibility. So he's he's going with this, though, digging the hole even deeper. He's going to continue to push and try to find ways to, yeah, uh, convince people that you can say that the president-elect was institutionalized with no no evidence whatsoever or nothing. Uh, you know what's next? Um, then again, I, they already they already have. I was going to say they've already accused Trump of sexual assault and all kinds of things. So this is, I suppose, in a weird way, par for the course. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three on the phones, uh, team. We've got a lot more to talk about. A lot more coming up. Bit into the uh, Trump cabinet, and we'll talk about Aleppo in hour three. Uh, stay with me. Light up those lines. I'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Bill Clinton offers up all kinds of reasons for why Hillary lost the election. Here's the latest. Clip one, go. I've never cast a vote I was prouder of. You know, I watched her work for two years. I watched her battle through that bogus email deal, be vindicated at the end when Secretary Powell came out. She fought through that. She fought through everything. And she prevailed against it all. But, you know, then at the end we had the Russians and the... And the FBI deal, but she couldn't prevail against that. She did everything else and still won by two points. Got to love it. David French joins us now. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. David, I'm correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if we were to pull out a dictionary, prevailing usually means winning. So she prevailed against <laughs> it all until she didn't prevail. Right. I mean, you know, this is it's it's interesting how quickly. Well, it shouldn't be interesting because he's a master politician, but how quickly um, Bill Clinton can spew out about every single Democratic talking point about the loss in less than 20 seconds. Um, it, she didn't actually lose as one of them because of the because of the popular vote that if she did to the extent that she did lose is because of Russia is because of bogus emails. It was because of WikiLeaks. I mean, you you name it, the the, the avalanche of excuses being made, uh, frankly, is is getting more than a little bit tiresome. Uh, and by the way, you wrote on NashReview.com about one of the, the favorite excuses of the left, and that's just old-fashioned, straight-up racism. <laughs> yeah. Um, this has got to be you know, the most irritating and the most destructive at the same time. It's irritating because it's incandescently stupid. So here you have a white, an older white man beating an older white woman, and the reason is racism. And when you dig into the numbers— you see that one of the reasons why the white man beat the white woman is because some voters who had voted for the first African-American president switched to Trump. Um, so uh, w- wait a minute. Did these, guys, did these voters suddenly become racist between 2008 and 2016 or 2012 and 2016? Or did they find Hillary Clinton to be a bad candidate? Uh, 
you know, and, and then when you begin to, to dig a little bit deeper, you actually find that Trump had a smaller percentage of the white vote than Mitt Romney did in 2012, but he had a larger percentage of the black vote and a larger percentage of the Hispanic vote than Romney did. And those are two of the things that helped push him over the top. But racism, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's really extraordinary. It is kind of amazing, really, given that the media, the two main reasons not to vote for Trump that they offered up were that he's a racist and that he's uh, a misogynist. Uh, that he did better than Romney did with minorities is, is, seems to be a surprise to a lot of folks. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It, it's a surprise to an awful lot of people, unless you take a step back for a minute. And you realize that, you know, maybe this Democratic coalition of the ascendant that they were bragging about so much after 08 and in 2012, this demographic coalition that was going to hand them the White House now and forever, wasn't so much a product of the Democratic Party as it was a product of Barack Obama. Maybe it's the case that to vote for the first African-American president in American history, with all that that means historically and all the excitement that it created, and then to reelect him, you're going to create a coalition that it won't be easy to create ever again, because you're never again again to have this incredible historical first. And then, and then when you replace Barack Obama on the ticket, or you uh, succeed Barack Obama on the ticket with a, a uh, ex- the second most disliked politician in the history of, of likability polling, you're going to have to expect that maybe your turnout isn't going to be quite as awesome as it was in 08, for example. You've also got a piece here uh, speaking about all things Trump and, and the cabinet. Uh, Trump cabinet picks should fight their own bureaucracies. Before I get into the fighting their own bureaucracies, though, David, everyone who listens to the show knows you've been you've been critical of Trump all, all along. He's now the president or president-elect. He's making some choices. What do you think about the cabinet he's pulling together? You know, overall, I'm pleased with it. Um, uh, you know, I think Scott Pruitt's a good choice to head the EPA. Uh, I think he's got the right idea of what the EPA's role is, uh, that it's one to be bounded by law and not just to effectuate environmental uh, change wherever it can wherever it can imagine that it can. I think that Jeff Sessions will be a good attorney general. I think he's a very good choice for that. I think uh, General Mattis is a brilliant cho- choice for Secretary of Defense. I mean, um, he's one of the most revered officers in the entire military. And then to put him at the head of the, of the Pentagon, I think, is a brilliant choice. So I think it, overall, on balance, he's made good choices. Betsy DeVos is an outstanding choice for Secretary of Education. Um, so all of all of these choices I like very much. I'm not quite sure what Ben Carson knows about housing and urban development, <laughs> but we'll have to see. Uh, but overall, I think particularly on these really key cabinet choices, he's made good ones. I, I question, however, his choice for Secretary of State. I uh, of the menu of options available to him in a climate in which the the um, relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin and the the problems of of Trump's expressed um, views towards Putin are now front and center in American in American political discourse, and then to nominate uh, as Secretary of State a guy who received an uh, Order of Friendship Medal from Putin himself is a little bit problematic. Um, now, I do think it's interesting that the people rallying to Tillerson's defense more than anyone else are uh, the, are not only uh, Bush-era foreign policy officials, but George W. Bush himself um, called Bob Corker to talk about Tillerson. So um, given all that uh, Trump said about Bush's foreign policy, 
in in the primary campaign in the general election to now have the Bush foreign policy team mobilizing in support of Rex Tillerson is one of the stranger ironies of this entire process. Returning, if we uh, if we can, to the sort of central, well, to the, the title and the central theme of your piece about Trump's cabinet picks fighting their own bureaucracies, uh, how, how do you think they should go about that? I mean, especially if you mentioned Pruitt at the EPA, and, and how much good can they really do, uh, given that they're going to be coming up against a lot of very entrenched civil servants who aren't yeah. going to want to be told that what they've been doing is no longer the way it's going to go? Yeah. You know, you raise a great a great point. And, and I think the, the short answer is it's extremely difficult to fight against the bureaucracy if you leave their power, fundamental power, untouched. And what I mean by that is those bureaucrats, their actual job is to enforce regulations that the agencies have promulgated. And so long as those regulations remain on the books and untouched, it's very difficult for an agency head to come in and adjust enforcement priorities, for example, or argue that they should take this case and not that case. But instead, if you begin to actually dismantle the regulatory framework itself to repeal regulations, then what you do is you strip the bureaucrats, no matter how progressive or activist they might be, of their power. And so I think that that's one of the things that a uh, that that uh, Trump cabinet officials should be focused on isn't so much sort of saying, OK, given the pre-existing regulatory superstructure, how can I adjust enforcement priorities, which they'll be fighting every tooth and nail every step of the way? How can they come in and say, what are key powers that I can strip from this agency where this agency has overstepped its lawful bounds? And, and I can think of in multiple federal agencies off the top of my head, multiple areas in which they have overstepped their bounds lawfully. They have strayed from their mission, truthfully, and, um, need to be stripped of their powers and refocused on the basics. And which, I mean, if you had to pick one, if you had to pick one, David, which of the federal regulatory agencies you think is the, is the biggest statist rogue elephant? (laughs) I, you know, if I had to pick one, I will, I'll pick, can I cheat and pick two? Sure. We'll give you Um, two. We're in a generous mood. Okay. (laughs) Department of education and EPA. Um, Department of Education has upended both higher education and secondary education with a series of memoranda on Title IX that have created nightmares of enforcement, nightmarish loss of due process of of students on college campuses, uh, have roiled and, and unsettled college campuses from coast to coast through a series of memoranda, literally memoranda, that um, expanded the scope of the agency uh, of the agency's work and the scope of its civ- quote unquote civil rights work way beyond the law. So that's one. And then the EPA, of course. I mean, the EPA has taken the Clean Air Act and em- empowered by the Supreme Court of the United States to some extent has used that as just a sledgehammer on uh, the American energy industry in the name of climate change. And look, if if the American people want an activist federal government on climate change, then they can vote in legislators who pass laws to that effect. However, the EPA is in in waging war on on climate change without any law and without any specific acts being passed by Congress empowering this, other than acts that have existed for decades that the EPA keeps steadily expanding through their scope through regulatory rulemaking. And the consequences on our economy are profound. I mean, you're talking about, for example, rules 
that are have such a negligible effect on on carbon emissions that you know just a couple of days of the Chinese economy working at full at full capacity are enough to wipe out all of the gains the carbon gains from EPA rules and yet thousands of jobs are lost so uh, you know again the EPA is is fully in the grips of this climate change hysteria it's pushing the needle to the red so to speak on its ability to on, on its law, rulemaking, and it needs to be reined in. And if Congress wants to do something about climate change, well, then by golly, Congress can pass a law. Let's not delegate all this to the bureaucrats. Speaking to David French, who's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. You guys all know David. Uh, David, I want to ask you one more thing, and just to get your take. Uh, we've been talking a lot, obviously, today on the show about what happened in Berlin and also what happened in Ankara, but just focusing in on the Berlin terrorist attack uh, for a moment. People always offer up the what can we do and more security and more intelligence cooperation. Is there really much we can do or is this the new normal? I mean, this, you know, I know you you actually know about this stuff is why, you know what I mean? A lot of people yeah. go on TV and talk about it. You actually did this in Iraq and you know the enemy. And uh, people ask me, what can we do? And I always say, well, it's complicated. <laughs> well, number one, there's no easy answer, uh, particularly now that. Um, ISIS has, in a way, revolutionized jihadist tactics. Uh, I say in a way because the Palestinians have already done this in their intifadas. Essentially, it's telling uh, what ISIS did that is different from Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda was focused on the mega attack, hijack multiple airliners at the same time, blow up embassies. All of those things are really hard to pull off, and and once you're aware that their plots are in motion, are easier to defend. But what ISIS did is said. We don't need to do that. Let's just do like what the Palestinians do in the West Bank, and that is whatever you have that can you, you can be used to commit an act of jihad, use it. Car, kitchen knife, rifle, anything that you can find. And once that cat was out of the bag, and once we have we and and once ISIS had already been allowed to exist so long that it that it helped spread that ideology from its safe havens in the Middle East, um, it gets really, really tough. Uh, to to defeat terrorism, uh, and by defeat I mean eliminate it to the point where it's it's meaningless in in public life. It gets very very difficult. Now, I will say this: if you do annihilate ISIS, if you do crush it, if you do leave the caliphate in ruins, you are going to have fewer people inspired because jihadists are inspired by winners, not losers, as a general rule. And so, if you can crush ISIS, you will remove at least some of the inspiration. But unfortunately, not all of it, because, as I said, the cat is out of the bag and this sort of spontaneous jihadist syndrome. Well, not really spontaneous because they're radicalized over a period of months and years. But this individual jihadist syndrome where they use whatever they have, wherever they are to kill as many people as they can. I'm afraid that might be a new normal, at least for a while. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, I'm also appreciative that I knew you would. Didn't just say we need more intelligence cooperation with our allies. <laughs> Every time somebody goes on TV and says that, I want to say, you know, it's not because this, these horrible things aren't happening because the Germans were like, we're just not going to share that with somebody, you know, or, or, or the French weren't going to share with the Germans. Anyway, but, but I digress. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> intelligence agencies have been trying really hard ever since 9-11 to stop these attacks. Yeah, th- th- this like is prime directive number one. Th- this is, yeah, yeah, this is all they, they, they've got literally, I mean, more people than I could even name, I mean, or think of in terms of the number off the top of my head in this country and abroad, handling this. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people just trying to prevent terrorist attacks. But we got to bounce for now. David French of National Review, everybody. Uh, David, what's your Twitter handle? At David A. French. There we go, at David A. French. David, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, guys, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. This is how they react to Donald Trump winning in the Electoral College yesterday. Maybe he is getting tired of winning. He won the election. Now he's won the Electoral College. You know, he's winning, hashtag winning all over the place. But you heard how they reacted in Wisconsin with the yelling and the shame, shame. By the way, I'm so excited for the next season of Game of Thrones. Here's how they react in Texas. Play clip five. By the way, Texas now puts President Trump over the top. See, there's some happy people that are happy that Trump won. Yay. Um, by the way, I, I, I watched a Oh, I'll well, we'll talk about new shows later in the week. I've, I've, been, I've been doing some Netflix binging. I'm sort of um, I've got uh, not senioritis, but like vacationitis. Like it's time. I need a vacation. Oh, I'll be in for Rush. That's a good reminder. On uh, December 30th and January 5th and 6th, I'll be in for Rush Limbaugh. So mark that on your calendars. Um, Yeah. Uh, But I will be out from radio, from Blaze Radio, next week. This is our last week together until the new year, everybody. Let's cherish it. We'll be right back. Buck Brief coming up. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.